0: I do not like horror movies, and I'm quite concerned for others of you who do, that that would be your source of entertainment. Horror movies are more than just a plot line built with suspense that might surprise the viewer, an unexpected scene, a turn of a plot. Horror movies have more in mind. Even by their own description, they want to get a response of fear or disgust from their audience for entertainment purposes. Many horror movies today, kind of one-upping each other, continue to just display what they've described as many forms of grotesque violence, sinister forms of mental illness, when the movie directors make their movies, they're often using cinematic techniques to provide psychological reactions, and the people watching, in order to have in some bizarre sense a way which you don't want to see it, and yet you keep watching it, there's things that shock you. Well, this morning, what we're going to read in the Scriptures Is not a horror movie plot. But it should honestly make you feel perhaps a little uncomfortable. It should maybe even tempt you to want to look away, flip the page, pull out your phone and search some other topic or interest than the one that we're looking at this morning. But if I can, ask you to stay with us. To see God's word, which in some regards could be said in this text this morning would be rated R. Not for its visuals, but for what it describes in the tragedy. This morning we're back in the book of Hosea, where we were together a couple of weeks ago. Specifically this morning in Hosea chapter 4 through 6. The title of our message is The Tragedy of Sin and the hope of God's forgiveness. Now, by way of review for a lot of you, by way of introduction for some of you, Hosea is this book in the Old Testament, right after the book of Daniel, the beginning, if you will, of the 12 minor prophets, not because they're significantly less important, but but simply their size is often referenced. Hosea takes place about 2,700 years ago. About 700 years before the life of Christ. It's a difficult time in the land. Israel is divided into two kingdoms. Israel, which is the northern part, and Judah, which is the southern part. Hosea, the prophet, began his ministry to Israel at a time when Jeroboam II was king, and then he dies. It's a tragic death. It creates a time of upheaval of unrest. You see, when Jeroboam II was king, things were good. The country was solid, economically fine. They were not only making budget, they were exceeding their budget expectations. Militarily stable. But things begin to twist and turn. After his 40-year reign, after Jeroboam's death, anarchy settles in. Israel declines rapidly. Four of their six kings were assassinated by their predecessor, or rather their successor, who'd come after them. It was a hot mess. Meanwhile, things were not much better in the southern kingdom of Judah. Uzziah had been struck with leprosy for neglecting his priestly role. Jotham had condoned idolatrous practices, which opened the way for Ahaz to encourage Baal worship, as it's often pronounced. Hezekiah did have a revival, but it only slowed Judah's acceleration towards forsaking the land. And as we saw a couple weeks ago in Hosea chapters 1 through 3, God says, I have a lesson to teach my people, and the only way I think most appropriate to get their attention is to take a man named Hosea, a prophet that I'm going to raise up to speak to my people, but before he does that, I have something I want him to do personally. He says, Hosea, I want you to marry this woman named Gomer, who's a prostitute. I want you to get married to her. I don't want you to have kids. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen when you have kids. It's going to blow your mind. Having loved her like no one would ever love her, cared for her like no one's ever cared for her, she is going to then leave you and go back to her former lovers. And then what I want you to do is I want you, Hosea, to go and buy her back. I want you to actually go pay your own money for your own wife to bring her home and love her again. And the Lord says, because that's exactly what it's like to love my people who I have loved radically, graciously, abundantly, and yet have kept abandoning me for some other false lovers of this world. And that's what brings us to our text this morning. If I could give you a main point for our time together in Hosea chapters 4 through 6, it would be this. Sin has consequences. Sin has consequences. The first thing we want to learn is the people's rebellion. Go to Hosea chapter 4. Look at how he begins... Picking up where we left off, Hosea chapter four, verse one. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. Let me ask you a question, ladies and gentlemen. Have you ever learned things about your family? that you're shocked to learn? Things that you're like, well, that's not that admirable. You know, there's things that our family members maybe have done. Brothers and sisters, uncles and aunts, grandparents and great-grandparents that we maybe are proud of. But then there's other things that you're like, well, that we just don't talk about the family get-together. That's just a thing we acknowledge we don't in any way acknowledge. As a pastor, I have had the responsibility to do many funerals. Funerals are an odd time in which people's lives all of a sudden become uh, surprisingly commendable for some people in an almost contrarian way. I remember one young man, I was his pastor in student ministry in California, and his father had tragically died. How did this man die? He died on a cocaine binge driving his car over 100 miles an hour into a concrete median and just killed himself, leaving his wife and multiple children to fend for themselves. This was not a one-time incident. This is how this man lived, notoriously. And yet, it was surprising at the funeral to hear people talk as if he had only been an angel, here for a short time, oh, how our lives were better for him, and I'm like, Um, okay, I'm not sure that that's the full truth. No, I'm not advocating at some funeral that you kind of get up and like, hey, let's just bring out all the dirty underwear of our family. But there's an acknowledgement that sometimes family has troubled history that's not the best. Hosea says, let's talk about family history. Let's talk about what your brothers and sisters, what your parents and grandparents, what you have been a part of. Look with me at the text, what it says here. Because God wants to talk about it. He says very significantly, verse 2, there is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery. This is a a reference, if you will, to the, the Ten Commandments. They break all bounds. Bloodshed follows bloodshed jump down to verse 11 of chapter 4. Their drunkenness is known. It says they cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which take away the understanding. Verse 18 of chapter 4, continuing on this drunkenness theme, when their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. Like, what do you do when you get drunk? You do stupid, sinful things. He's like, that's what they do. That's what you've done. He continues in chapter 4, verse 12. My people inquire of a piece of wood. I love it. I love how honest the word of God is. He's like, hey, I want you to see how ridiculous you are, how foolish you are. You go to a piece of tree and you say to the tree, what should I do with my life? Oh, I think the tree wants me to. Have these fake gods carved out of metals and wood. Look at chapter five, verse five. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Earlier in chapter fourteen, or chapter four, verse eighteen, it says that they were like a, a stubborn heifer. In verse sixteen, it says like a stubborn heifer. Israel is stubborn. They're a proud people. And jump ahead to chapter six. Look at what it says here in verses four through six. What should I do with you, O Ephraim? What should I do with you, O Judah? It's it's a different term to refer to the same group of people. Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore I've hewn them in by the prophets, I've slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. He's like, you guys have insincere religious practices. You're proud, you worship idols, you get drunk, you're known for swearing and lying and murdering and stealing and committing adultery, you break all of my laws, and the list continues in the coming chapters. I mean, you're like, Hosea, this is not how you're gonna win friends and influence people, you keep this sermon up. They're not gonna invite you back for a second round of this, you keep this up. This is gonna go against the face of any kind of like, how to build a church, On positivity. Here's a challenge you need to recognize. God wants his people to listen. Why? Because there can be no forgiveness if there's not repentance. And there will not be any repentance if there's not an honest ownership of sin. Everybody loves forgiveness. But not as many people love repentance. Repentance. God is clear to his people in his word. You have to see it honestly and own it personally and deal with it humbly. Or what you hope God will give, he's not extend to those who refuse to ask for forgiveness. The problem here, as you see in this text, Hosea chapter 4 through 6, is that it's not just a branch of the family tree. The whole tree is corrupted. The people have become corrupt. But here's the problem. It's the same problem that we can fall into today. The people, circumstantially, were doing really well. Yeah, they had some political problems that kept arising. But personally, they probably were in probably some of their best years. And it's very easy to make the same mistake today as it was for them, which is to think, hey, if my life is going well, God must be happy with me. Because I would think if things are not going well, then, then God's not happy with me, or vice versa. If God's happy when things are not going well. So because things are going well, then I must be okay. They were distracted by their material blessings, by the provision that God had graciously provided. Here's a question we have to think about ourselves. Are you and I tempted to think the same way? We read a text earlier this morning that I want to draw your attention back to because I think it's profound in what it says. Specifically, Romans chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, says the following. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Now, in fairness to the text, Romans chapter 2. He has transitioned, Paul has transitioned his audience in discussion from talking about the Gentiles of Romans chapter 1, the greater world at large, to then the Jewish people in the church in Rome. In Romans chapter 2, he's like, hey guys, just so you think you're not off the hook, if you're so quick to judge the world and you don't you deal with your own issues, you're mistaking the fact that God's been kind to you. Why? In order to lead you to repentance. There's that forbearance that God displays as we see even back in the book of Hosea. But here's the problem we see back in Hosea. It's not just the people. The story gets worse. The people who should be leading them to God are actually leading them away from God, which takes us to our second point in the sermon in Hosea chapters four through six, and that is the priest's facilitation. The priest's facilitation. Now, I'm sure perhaps a lot of you have heard of the word autopsy. An autopsy is a surgical procedure that a medical examiner does as a physician to examine the corpse, a body, to find out what was the cause of death. What happened to them? Sometimes it's because there's different debates as to what the cause of it was. Sometimes it's a complete mystery. There's like literally no clue seemingly at visible display to know what it is. And so the question wants to be answered, how did that person die? Or perhaps for a criminal proceeding, what is the cause of death? And is someone to be prosecuted for the cause of that person dying? And sometimes it's not always what they would expect. Now, It's oftentimes a case in society we're often intrigued by celebrities. How did that person die? What kind of life were they living? What was the cause of their death? And it's sometimes surprising and sometimes tragically not surprising. A number of years ago, the musician Prince was found dead in his elevator. The autopsy report showed that he had overdosed with a synthetic opioid, fentanyl. He died from fentanyl. Not an uncommon story we hear with nameless amounts of people, but someone like Prince died as well. Back in 2016, the actress Carrie Fisher, best known for her role as Princess Leah in Star Wars, died. She was flying from London to Los Angeles when during that flight she went into cardiac arrest. They arrived in LA, transported as quickly as possible to the hospital where she was pronounced dead. Everybody believed, well honestly, if you knew her, you would know it had to be drug-related. Even her own brother said, if you knew my sister, you knew she used drugs, assuming that would be the cause of death. And it is true, when they did the autopsy, they found in her methamphetamine, cocaine, alcohol, ecstasy, and traces of heroin in her body at the time of death. But you know what the determined cause of death was for her? Sleep apnea. Homegirl died of sleep apnea. And that isn't a bit ironic. Now, why do I say all that? Because you look at the death of these people, the spiritual death of them. What was the cause And Hosea? Well, he tells us. How did the people get like this? What was in the system? Well, we see here in the text, it's with the priests that they had. The priests were so corrupt. Look at it back with me in chapter four. Look at what it says in chapter four, verses four through six. He says, with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day. The prophet also shall stumble with you by night. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. The very people that God gave to teach the people about who God is didn't teach them at all. Pastor Johnny shared with me the story last night we were together. The seminary that he went to in Sweden, where he lives. It's a liberal seminary. Johnny was trying to study the Word of God and was really just captivated, not by what he was being taught in the classroom, but by what he was reading out of the classroom. In fact, the book that first rocked his world that all of us can appreciate is a book by R.C. Sproul, The Holiness of God. And it just began this journey of reading the scriptures and being overwhelmed with God. One of his professors, though, in seminary, I just want to say that sentence to you again. One of his professors in seminary expressed concern for Pastor Johnny that he might need some counseling. Because he was so fixated on learning and knowing who God was. This is a person trained to raise up pastors for churches. And he expresses a concern over those that actually might be in love with God. Wanting people to know who God is. Well, the priests we see here would simply make a professor like this proud. They were not concerned about God. They did not teach God's word to God's people. Look at chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. They feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity. They want to do the same thing. In verse 9, and it shall be like people like priests. The same kind of people. It shall be like people like priests. And I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. Jump ahead to chapter 5. He's listing off the people that are facilitating sin. He says, hear this, O priests. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king, for the judgment is for you. The priests are listed with the people and the king is facilitating sin. Jump ahead to chapter 6. Look what it says in verse 9 as robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. How embarrassing is it that God, by his actions, by his grace, is saying, here are my people. And here are their leaders. Imagine how embarrassing it was for Hosea to speak of his wife Gilmer. Oh, oh, that's your wife? I've slept with her. Oh, you too? That imagery is how he speaks of the people of Israel. And the priests facilitation of more of the sin. This is why it's so tragic today, in fairness to perhaps some of you here, who look at the church with skepticism and doubt. Not only because you know of other people who profess to be Christians, but live so different from that by comparison of what you think a Christian would be. But even more tragic than that, when you see of spiritual leaders, of pastors, of teachers of the word of God, who seemingly are just using people for their own good, milking them for their own financial profit, telling such people, if you have faith, you will give to the church, which will buy me my Mercedes, facilitate my lifestyle, support my exorbitant Mortgage payment, support my Gucci belts and the like. If you love God, then you will participate in that. And I will see you as not who you are, created in God's image. I will see you as a means to my own sinful ends. In fact, when I see your sin, I'll be jealous that you get to sin publicly. I have to sin privately. For those of you who have seen of such examples, I want to say on behalf of the bride of Christ, I apologize. I apologize. I can just say on behalf of the Lord, he sees what you see. He is not pleased with those things. And he has a strong word as he has always had for his people. Now he loves them in a way that a father loves a child. He loves them, but he is concerned for them. And that speaks to why his people could not do it themselves why they needed one who would obey like they never could, who would live like they have never even tried, let alone aspired to. That's why he had to send his own son, because only the Son of God could fulfill the law of God to accomplish the righteousness of God. That anyone, anywhere, under any circumstances, would see that they cannot save themselves, but they could turn to the substitute, the Son of God for the forgiveness of their sins. God offers forgiveness through his Son. We see this tragic reality that not only the people need a substitute, but so do the priests. Even pastors need the gospel as well as we think about the reality of how lives can be broken and so dearly, deeply affected. The question we have to ask in this text is, what is God really interested in? Is he just some insecure deity that's embarrassed by people that he elected that's kind of giving him a bad name, that don't make him look good? Is just Hosea, like a PR manager, stepping up and saying, guys, get your act together. You're making God look bad before all these other nations. Why'd you go over to Assyria? You should have come to God. Come on, you know better. No, it's so much more. Which takes us third and final. God's desire for relationship. The people's rebellion, the priest's facilitation, but encouragingly and soberly, God's desire for relationship. God's desire is not primarily about the absence of something, but the presence of something. He's not simply saying, knock it off. He's saying, what happened? What happened to you? What's missing here? The two most frequently used words in the book of Hosea are these two words. Remember them. Highlight them and mark them in your Bibles when you see them regularly. Return and know. Return and know. Look at the problem in chapter four, verse six. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. You want pastors to teach you God's word so that you might know, love, and live for God, not yourself. But God simply does not want some superficial, insincere, ceremonial relationship. He wants a committed, wholehearted relationship. Look at chapter 5. Look what it says in verse 15. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. And in their distress, earnestly seek me. So like, okay, God, you want some religiosity? We'll give it. Look at verse one of chapter six. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, that he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. So that's what they say, but look at what God says in response in verse 6 as he identifies their hypocrisy, their insincerity. I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Friends, this is clarifying. The way to have a relationship with God is not through what you do. Don't do these things, do these things. Come to church, dial back to alcohol. Say no to pornography, volunteer at your local food shelter. Get enough of that on your log sheet, and God's like, okay, we're on the good page together. It's not at all what's happening in the text here. It's not at all what's happening in the scriptures collectively. God is saying, I'm not interested in you just simply being there to be there, offering you sacrifices by modern day vernacular, just being in church, singing songs, or reading the Bible and praying prayers. I want you to give me yourself. I want you. I don't want your actions. I don't want your money, I want you. Would you give me you? How would you give the Lord you? Well, because you would want to know him. And in knowing him, you would delight in him. To know the Lord is to have a relationship with him. This relationship should be active and vital and healthy and ongoing. It involves reading his word. Not just saying, well, I'll go to a church where a pastor reads the word for me, explains it to me. And I hope he does it on my behalf. No, it's actually knowing this God and enjoying him. This relationship with him has social and ethical realities and how you interact with others in society, of course, your family members, your neighbors, those you work alongside. But Lord wants you. Jesus said himself in John 14. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. For those of you who are Christians, this is a chance this morning for us to renew our vows to the Lord, to come back and be reminded of what God is calling us to, to be a people who testify of the greatness of God. For those of you who don't know the Lord, see how enduring the love of God is. He does not disown his people when they disappoint him. He does not divorce himself from them relationally. He does not abandon them like perhaps some of your earthly parents have abandoned you and never know you and you've never known them. No. God loves his people in all seasons and all situations. He loves them enough to confront them, and he loves them enough to console them. He'll never find another God because there is no other God except this God of the Scriptures by which you can be loved like this through Christ, his Son, who died as a substitute. And what comfort there is in that. So does sin have consequences? Absolutely. To say otherwise is to lie about God and His ordering of the world. But those consequences do not have to be the end of the story. You can begin a new chapter, a chapter that Hosea is calling the people to—one of repentance and belief, trust that the God who has saved you, the God is calling you to live for Him before this watching world.